0: Hello, welcome to True Hoop with me, Gerard Hector, and today is a special episode. I have with me the author, uh, Built from the Fire, for those of you looking it on video, you can see the cover, the epic story of Tulsa's Greenwood District, America's Black Wall Street, 100 years in the neighborhood that refused to be erased. I have the author, Victor Lucerson, with me today. How are you, sir?
1: I'm doing great, Gerard. Thanks for having me here.
0: Thank you for being here. Um, you know, so my first uh, introduction to you was a piece you did in 2018 uh, for The Ringer called Black Wall Street, the African-American haven that burned and then rose from the ashes. Um, and so you go from that to writing this book. And, you know, I would imagine many people have heard of the Tulsa Race Massacre by now. One of the more violent acts of racial violence in this country's history. Uh, happened on May 31st, since the early hours of June 1st, 1921. Uh, that killed 300 plus people, wiped out businesses and homes and, and everything. Um, what led you to decide to write this particular book?
1: Yeah, you know, definitely is a winding journey. Um, thanks for shouting out the Ringer. <laughs> I don't know how many folks who read me now know I used to be a <laughs> technology reporter for the, the ringer dot com. <laughs> what a great website! Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tagline, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was just an. I mean, for me at least, um, like I said, I actually have a background in tech and business reporting, but I've always had a passion for writing about Black history and writing about our people. And so when I was at the Ringer, I was kind of in this weird like dual role where like technically I was like a tech blogger mm-hmm. but occasionally I'd be like hey I really want to write something about like national affairs or politics or kind of like engage with some other aspect of my interest and you know The Ringer was really good I think about letting their writers roam a lot and so I actually remember uh, this kind of getting in the weeds but I feel like you're a big Ringer guy so <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll dive in a little bit and um, I actually remember I pitched a story to them about Black Wall Street mm-hmm. Um and my editor, Sean Fennessey, was kind of like, We don't really have a hook for this. There's not like a date or an anniversary that's really big, but right. it sounds interesting. Why don't you just go? Mm-hmm. And so I'm really glad I got that opportunity through them. And for me, kind of the original motivation for it, honestly, was I was living in at Atlanta, um, 2017, 2018, and I was having lunch with one of my friends, my high school friends, uh, that, that fall 2017. And the movie Years a Slave came up. And that's one, you know, that's one of those films, you know, Oscar winning, great film, a film you're kind of like supposed to see, you know, it's a capital I important movie, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And my friend had never seen it. He was kind of almost like a little embarrassed that I haven't seen it. But he basically was like, I'm tired of only seeing us being brutalized in pop culture. Like, I don't want to see black folks getting abused as slaves or getting Mm -hmm. sick by a dog in the Silver Ice Movement. I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of over it. Mm -hmm. And so I asked my friend, have you ever heard of Black Wall Street? That's an example of us being successful. Mm -hmm. And so my friend had never heard of Black Wall Street at all. Um, and as you said, it's pretty ubiquitous now. Mm-hmm. But if you googled "Greenwood or Black Wall Street" in 2017, there really wasn't that much on the internet right. about it. Mm-hmm. And so that was really my motivation. Um, you know, that story does say the neighbor that rose from the ashes. You know, that, that original Ringer piece I wrote. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to capture the full history of the neighborhood in that original piece, and then I kind of carried that mentality over to the book that I wrote. So the book itself captures those two days of the race mask, but it also captures the entire 118 years of Greenwood history. Mm-hmm. I think less people understand that, you know, black folks are more than just their trauma, for sure. That's definitely one of my goals with the, with the book. No, uh, for sure. And I think it, it
0: clearly comes through in, in the book when you read it. Um, and, and it led me to think of something else. Um, when I started reading your book, I couldn't help but think of Isabel Wilkinson's Wilkes- Wilkes- masterpiece, The Warmth of Other Suns um and so I, that that is the
1: highest praise you can give me so thank you that was my, that was my north star thank you thank you gerard you, you got to get on amazon a good with that, one. I, need that I, need, I need that hype
0: <laughs> well clearly so it's a book that i'm sure you are you are very, very familiar with obviously having read it and you said it was your north star so how did it influence you as a journalist and writer
1: yeah you know i actually read that book It was actually recommended to me by a friend when I first was like 20, that same window, twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen, 2018, I said, oh, I'm going to write this book about Greenwood and this neighborhood over a long period of time. And one of my friends recommended that book to me, and it was just mind-blowing to me. A few things that book did I think were great. A, being able to meld narrative storytelling with academic rigor. It does that so amazingly well. Like She did so much, mm-hmm. not only academic research, but so much to capture the true lives of those people's uh, stories, mm-hmm. the three main figures in that book who experienced the great migration. And then also I thought that book did a really cool thing where it like took an American mythology that everyone is familiar with, which is like the immigrant story, mm-hmm. the Ellis Island immigrant tale, and sort of applied it to black people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I really liked that it took this sort of that's this thing that's part of the American DNA and said, hey, black people are part of this story too. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I think on the one side I really wanted to make sure that I could do both a lot of academic rigor and research, but also made the book feel like a story. And then also I wanted to sort of place black people in a place we're not usually allowed to be, which is like the West, you know? Mm-hmm. The West is a really big thing in the American mythology. It's yep. a place of new experiences, opportunity, all these kind of things. And that's why, you know, the, the main family in my book, The Good Ones, they went West seeking the same thing, seeking opportunity, seeking a better life. And so I really liked the idea of putting us in that in that American mythos in the way we often aren't allowed to be. And so I think one of the Sons did that probably better than any other book. And so anytime anybody gives me a little bit of one of the son's hype, I'm like, thank you so much. I appreciate that.
0: Well, listen, that's what we're here for, man. No, but it, it, you know, that's, you know, a few years ago on this here podcast, um, this was right around the time of the George Floyd shooting and everything. Um, I had, you know, said, you know, during times like this, you know, what are, I was asked, you know, what are, what are you doing? I'm like, honestly, I was like, I go back to books and like it, it, there's there's some comfort and 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 uh sort of reassurance that I that I get there. Um and North the Brother Sons was for sure one of the ones I had on that list. Um, and you know, it's interesting because I talked about on, on that on that episode how I go back to W.B. Du Bois and different folks like that, and they play a prominent role uh, in your book in the way that the residents of the Greenwood district of Tulsa sort of saw themselves, right? Was it the 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 w.e.b du bois talented 10th was it the booker t washington mold like write these different sort of of positions and i think what your book does capture very well and i'd love you to speak to it is and i say this all the time when i talk to people i'm like you do know black people on a monolith right like we,
1: like, it's,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there, no other group of people do i feel like oh well you're black so you must x it's like what why like like what based on what? Right. And I think you capture that very well um in, in your book, particularly when you talk about uh the the Greenwood district. So get in let's get into a little bit about the differences within the people inside of 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 Greenwood.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you asked about that, Gerard, because that really is something that was a major goal for me, and I'm glad it carried through in the pages. I feel like Um, honestly, when I started the story, I wouldn't necessarily say that was my goal. Like I was very caught up in the Black Wall Street mythology. You know, I mentioned that I began this project because my friend never heard of Black Wall Street and I wanted to give him almost this like blueprint of black success. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the original vision of the book. And then I started actually digging into the archives and reading what these folks thought in Greenwood and Oklahoma. I kind of realized like, oh, everybody didn't think alike about, you know, what is the best path forward for this neighborhood and for this community and for black people as a whole. I'm um, in the United States, and so I think that it became really important to me to present the neighbor in, in an authentic way, um more so than sort of in, in like a wish fulfillment mm-hmm. kind of way. you know what I mean. And so I think that comes across in a few ways. Um, first of all, philosophically, I do set up early in the book this sort of um divide between Booker T. Washington and W. B. Du Bois, sort of the two leading black intellectuals and leaders of the early nineteen hundreds. And sort of this notion that on the Brooke T. Washington side, there was this idea he had this premise that black folks should essentially perform well in their current works, whether it's like agriculture or in some cases business, and sort of like prove prove their worth in some sense to the overall American economy. And if we can do that, then because we're valuable, we'll sort of be accepted into the overall white system. That's kind of like his old premise, basically. Um, whereas on WB Du Bois's side, there was a sense that, you know. Uh, this system already gives. We already deserve our rights based on the Constitution and the way the this, this this city, the country is supposed to be organized. So you know, um, if this country gonna live, live up to its ideals, black people deserve or owed their rights. You know what I mean? And I thought that the um, sort of interplay between them was really interesting. I really wanted to highlight that. So the chapter there's a chapter in the book about when Booker T. Washington came to Oklahoma and was sort of amazed by the entrepreneurship and all this kind of stuff. But then the board is kind of in the background being like, OK, OK, entrepreneurship is cool, but like, let's not t- get too big of a head. You know, mm-hmm. we're trying to do something besides just have a few rich black folks. You know, we want to be able to have a system where all of our people can benefit. And so I think that tension involving black capitalism and black entrepreneurship is really important to understand. And, you know, I think we see that today mm-hmm. when some people sort of criticize for example, quote unquote, woke capitalism, like, oh, we're going to like say the right things post George Floyd, but what are we doing to actually change the society for our people? Um, I think sort of of a similar debate simmering in early Greenwood. And one of the things I really love, one of my favorite small details I discovered is, okay, so you have this big national debate between Washington and Du Bois, and they're like these two icons of the era. And then in little old Greenwood, they, they opened their first high school in the 1910s. And they had to decide what to name it, and there was this big debate: should it be Booker T. Washington High School mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or should it be Du Bois High School? And for me, that really threw me for a loop thinking about it, because so in my hometown of Montgomery, Alabama, we have a we have a Booker T. Washington High School. Lots of people, lots yep. of places mm-hmm. so it is Tulsa. Tulsa. Tulsa chose Washington. Yep. It's Booker T. Washington High mm-hmm. School. But I know as a kid, I just took Booker T. Washington to be like kind of like correct, <laughs> just because <laughs> like his name, his name was everywhere, you know. Exactly. It took a lot longer for me to realize who Du Bois even was exactly. or what his philosophy was yeah. because his name wasn't anywhere in my in my world view. Uh-huh. And so that simple decision to name these schools Booker D. Washington High School instead of Du Bois High School probably, you know, made millions of people less aware of Du Bois' philosophy for a long time. So that's a really small decision, it seems like, but it's actually very powerful mm-hmm. in the way that we all understand our country and our world. And so I really wanted to get that um dichotomy in there. And then the other thing I really wanted to convey about Greenwood was that everybody wasn't rich you know that was really important for me to dive into so so early in the book I sort of explained that there was a lot of poverty in Greenwood um they had challenged with the crime like any neighbor would have yep. um bootlegging early, gambling all these sure. yes <laughs> yeah yeah it's all part of the mix you know what I mean and so that again was to me important because I think when you see the world that way it's easier for the reader to place themselves in it because that's the world we all live in you mm-hmm. know what I mean Versus some kind of like utopia, fever dream type situation right. that isn't that isn't real. I don't think that's as that's as engaging or immersive or authentic. So that was kind of my goal um, in terms of going beyond the black monolith for sure.
0: Uh, I, I love all of that. You know, it's so funny because when I when I got into the the part where you're making the the distinction between Booker T and, and W D Boys, it took me back to college as an undergrad, and I remember because. My senior seminar um, involved, I mean, well, a lot of my college work, I was an English major, but a lot of it um, uh, revolved around Du Bois and a lot of his work. And I remember like in in one of my classes, you know, you get debated and you're like in your late teens, early twenties. And I'm like, Man, I don't want to hear about Booker T anymore. I'm like I'm like yelling at someone across the room. We not we not here for that salad. Let's talk about my guy W E B Du Bois, right? And like, and I'm like out here pushing the talent to death and all this stuff. And it was, and it's so crazy. But like, and you see, like, yeah, that's that was the mindset of like people in it. Like this is this is me way post these dudes have been dead for however long by now. But in right, the moment, right. right, it's the same type of feeling, like which is the way to go. And to your point, it's not by accident that Booker T. Washington is the name of so many more things that exists today, and W.E. Du Bois is not, right? And it, it's mm-hmm. it's just, mm-hmm. to me, all of that is so, so fascinating. You know, the one thing we didn't do, and that's my fault of remiss, can you just give people a quick synopsis on what Black Wall Street is, even for people, by now you should know, but for people who may not like, what, Black Wall Street, what are you talking
1: about? Sure, sure, yeah. So Black Wall Street is a nickname for the Greenwood District, which is a black neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, It was a very thriving, entrepreneurial, successful neighborhood um, in the early 1900s, really throughout the 1900s. And kind of, I think one reason it sort of got this mystique is because I at least didn't know black people were in Oklahoma until I learned about this. (laughs) I never thought about black people being there, you know? like, Oh, y'all were in Oklahoma and y'all were killing it? That's like two surprises at one time, you know what I mean? Um, so I think that's part of the, and then I, also, like I said, at the start of this, we don't really get that many success stories Correct. as black people mm-hmm. in black history. And so this idea of this like successful thriving black community is just really appealing. But the reason that it's, I guess, you know, been discussed a lot more in the last few years is because in 1921, uh, a white mob, uh, burned down most of the neighborhood, um, killing the airport up to 300 people. The incident was instigated by a false mm-hmm. uh, rape accusation. A black man was falsely accused of raping a white, attempting to rape a white woman. Uh, but sort of in the bigger than that, there are these issues about like land use mm-hmm. and the fact that the Greenwood area was very close to downtown, so a lot of white industrials wanted the land. Mm-hmm. There's the issue of politics. You know, Oklahoma um, basically imported Jim Crow politics from the Deep South and became a very racist. White supremacist place over time, even though it ha- did not have to be that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also the issue of black self defense. Yep. Um, black folks, when this guy was falsely accused of rape, black folks, he was this guy was arrested, Dick Rowan, mm-hmm. and black uh, veterans armed themselves and went down to protect him at the courthouse. Mm-hmm. And white folks did not like that. Sure enough. And so you know, the book kind of explores all of these other factors that are going on. I think often when we think about that era, sometimes um, racial violence can kind of be distilled into like, oh, this. A false rape, rape accusation causes all this kind of stuff to happen, right. but there's a lot of other factors that um, feed into these issues that I try to highlight in the book too. And, so. you, and
0: you do an excellent job. And so I want to go there. Uh, violence, right? And I mean, it's as American as apple pie, right? To to yeah. not be glib about it. Um, it's the means through which the country was founded, created, maintained, and kept away from others, right? I mean, so how did you see the relationship between the inherent violence, uh of the time, both internally and externally, in the telling of this story?
1: Yeah, no, that's a really interesting question. I think that, I think one thing that really struck me was how condoned um, vigilantes were mm-hmm. in that era. Mm-hmm. Just vigilantism was just sort of part of how justice worked in mm-hmm. early 20th century America, and especially in Oklahoma. And so, for example, in the 1910s, these um, vigilante groups, some of which included real estate men, oil men, very powerful men in Tulsa, they would go around like tar and feathering socialists because they didn't like them um, or criminal people accused of crimes because they thought that they were sort of besmirching the honor of their community. Mm-hmm. And the police would sometimes actually be involved in like even like condoning the violence right. or praising it. Right. The media sometimes praised lynchings mm-hmm. in Oklahoma. Um, you know, a black woman named Marie Scott, lived in this town called Wagoner, which is an hour from Tulsa. Um, She had been arrested on a murder accusation, which probably wasn't true. She was taken from her um, jail cell and lynched by a white mob in about 1917 or so. And the Wagoner newspaper said, like, sometimes a lynching is like a good thing. They were literally rationalizing in the paper um, on the opinion page next week. And so this sort of violence was seen as sort of part and parcel for how to have a functioning society mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, um, especially by white people. I should say that black leaders were actually more, more likely to um, be against violence Correct. in all its forms. Mm-hmm. You know, um, AJ Smithman was actually the owner of the Tulsa star, the black newspaper in Greenwood. And he basically said that there is no place for mob violence, whether it's against a black person, a white person, this is just not how our justice system is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. I think black people recognize that this sort of lawless world was always going to come back on, on them harder. Correct. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so they saw that um upholding the system that's purported to be what our country is was really their only way, only means of survival. And so it definitely was striking to sort of see I think there can be kind of like a Wild West image in people's heads of like lawlessness, mm-hmm. but it's more like the law condoned Correct. what these vigilantes were doing. These vigilantes were part of the law. Yeah. And that's a very different sort of framework than like a sort of Western movie kind of vibe. You know yeah. what I mean?
0: I mean where you see it today in sort of modern culture is if anyone who's listening is familiar with the Taylor Sheridan universe if you watch any of those shows eighteen eighty three and nineteen twenty three right all that violence it is as as Victor's talking about the marshals and sheriffs are like, are right, okay, you're gonna go protect your oh, cool like I mean there's not a whole lot they can do it isn't this idea of someone commits a crime and it's like okay let's let's uh you know take them to, let's take them to court like no, no, none of that like Crime, cool, you're in jail, we're holding you. And then to, to Victor's point, tension simmer and people are like, no, we need justice demand now. And it often is, right, these 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 mobs of often white people who just, you know, to your point, dragged that woman out of her cell, uh, lynched her. Like it is, and it is, again, it's just baked into the fabric of the country, right? That is how the, con- think about it, right? How did the country acquire the land in the first place? Like go all the way back. Well, it had to steal it from people, right? How do right. you take things right. from people? The threat or actual violence? You can't just, right? Like that's how things work. Like think about today. If you got right. mugged or robbed, how does that happen? Someone either commits violence or threatens violence against you, right? Like it, it is, and it's wild. And that that uh, particular, you know, moment in history in 1921, um, and in, in your book, you do a great job of talking about to scan through the story of the Goodwin family. Ed was hiding in his bathtub um in his house and this idea of people literally storming into your neighborhood and it's it's a it was a concert a coordinated effort right victor like we had airplanes coming over dropping button like not actual war bombs but bombs nonetheless right uh made up bombs uh people with kerosene lighting just coming in and literally just lighting and destroying things and it's like wait what like how was that possible and this we're not talking about the 1700s. This was 1921, not that, 100 years ago.
1: Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I think certainly the um, coordination was something that I really wanted to emphasize. Um, again, even I think that term, like, there's so there's certain terminology that's been associated with the incident for a long time that implies spontaneity. Mm-hmm. Um, mob right that implies right. that people kind of banded together really fast and did something right. um, that they weren't necessarily planning. Um, so the event used to be called a riot for mm-hmm. a very long time. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, riot invo- right. implies spontaneity, mm-hmm. no pre-planning. And so when you actually read sort of what happened and the fact that, okay, these people were able to gather up all these materials mm-hmm. to do this wholesale destruction, um, when you hear firsthand accounts about people saying that sort of in different parts of Tulsa, white Tulsa that night, there are men standing on the top of cars saying, be ready at 5 a.m. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And then also when you just look at the pictures, you know, yes. if like, you've seen a picture mm-hmm. of the neighborhood, Greenwood afterward, looks like a bombed out war zone mm-hmm. and there's just no way to execute that level of destruction in the course of like four or five right. hours. On a whim. Night. No, that doesn't happen on a whim. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, one of the challenges, um, like I said, my book's very academic and rigorous and I don't say things I can't prove. Mm-hmm. And so one of the challenges is how do you sort of prove how it was planned mm-hmm. And the truth is, we don't we don't exactly know, and so I don't. In the book, I don't sort of right. say in this smoky room two weeks before <laughs> right, right. the blueprints were laid out. We don't we don't know if that happened or not. But what I do say is that White Tulsa, a had a predisposition for wanting that land. There were these white industrialists who really really wanted the Greenwood property turned into a train station or a depot or just something else to benefit mm-hmm. White Tulsa. Basically, that's a fact. We also know that White Tulsa condone vigilantism and had a lot of paranoia about both like a quote unquote Negro invasion, but also like a communist invasion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, thinking about this is the era of the red scare actually. Mm-hmm. And so for example, in white Tulsa, they were before the race massacre, they were doing um, aerial exercises with airplanes. Right. The police were so that if a communist invaded, they would have these planes. They could use them to surveil or attack the commies basically. Right. Um, There's also experiments in Tulsa or tests to, um, drop nitroglycerin from airplanes or to show that you could carry nitroglycerin without having a plane blow up. And so in the book, I kind of lay out, there's a lot of capacity, basically. There's a lot of capacity in white Tulsa and powerful Tulsa, too, if they want to Mm -hmm. execute a plan pretty fast um, to destroy their enemies, you know. And on the night of the race massacre, black people became the white enemy very, very fast. And so in the book, I sort of try to tell this line where I'm not going to sort of say here's a conspiracy because we can't prove it, but I right. will bring you every every shred of evidence I've found that will sort of let us understand how this conspiracy could have been carried out.
0: No, yeah, and you, you do a, a masterful job of that. And I mean, all the things you said about the Red Scare and how they were like, well, let's plan and prepare for this. I mean, it was the same things they used to actually, right, to tear down, to tear down Greenwood. So again, yeah. you know, I, I always say to lawyer friends of mine, I go, you know, circumstantial evidence puts people in jail like very quickly for murder and things of that nature i'm like you add two and two together here and it's very easy to see how you get to four right like this is not yeah. rocket science you don't need to uh, draw a through line and look the, the thing that we've talked around but clearly is evident is the what the sign and the the visual of black progress and success Mm -hmm. what that meant now again to your point you talk about things you can't prove right like i cannot get into the hearts and minds of people at that time because most of them are dead right so Mm -hmm. i don't know but we do know historically right because this the greenwood area this isn't the only place in america that this happened to right prior to the the 1921 massacre we had we had the the red summer right in 1919 Mm -hmm. so -hmm. in many ways this was kind of predictable was going to happen, right? To to Delta. Mm-hmm. There, there is something about Black success and progress that creates animus in white yeah. groups during this time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Again, another really small detail that I have in the book that I thought was a great discovery was, so this is the 1910s, a few years before the race massacre. Since we're essentially on a sports podcast now, this should be relevant. <laughs> um, so... There was a baseball was really popular at the time, mm-hmm. and Greenwood, Greenwood had a baseball team. There was a black baseball team in Greenwood in the 1910s, and they started playing these uh, interracial games against white teams. Mm-hmm. And so the Tulsa Tribune actually said, so the Greenwood team were dominant. They were just dominating. Mm-hmm. Greenwood team was just winning every single time. And so the white newspaper said, hey, we need to cut out these interracial games. Like I don't, we're not we're not feeling right. this. And they even, they even called it evil. They used the word evil to describe black people and white people playing baseball together. It's a game. It's so that's kind of like a, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's kind of like a flippant example, but it shows the depth to which white people resented black success and black progress, I think.
0: Yeah, w- without question. No, it, it, was, it was something. Well, the other thing that you, the book does well, Victor, is you sort of grapple with this idea of linear versus cyclical. Um, and on the one hand, time has passed. It's 2023. Uh, you know, we, as a as a as a society, things look different now than they did in the 1910s and 1920s. That's just a factual statement. Um, but in many ways, right? So that's a linear. But in many ways, uh, it's kind of cyclical, right? This idea of violence to take away land has now turned into urban policies and planning and gentrification and different. It's all the same thing ultimately, right? How do I keep certain people from doing what they want to do? Right. And it just it just looks different. So how did you see that as you were doing the academic rigor portion of this, right? This idea between linear progress and cyclical. Everyone's heard the term, right? Progression isn't linear. I'm like, it's true, it's not. But cyclical isn't progression, right? That's just we're just dancing around the same thing. It may look the point of view may look different because we're at the top of the circle versus the bottom but we're still around that same place and we haven't advanced and gone anywhere.
1: Yeah. You know, I think really that's almost been a lifelong journey for me, sort of changing my mindset on that. I felt like when I was a teenager, I mean, probably, this was probably just being a teenager, but I definitely was like a cynical, I guess you would have <laughs> called me an Afro pessimist. I wouldn't know that term then, but I was probably an Afro pessimist as a, as a high school student. And then um, when I was a senior in high school, um, Barack Obama uh, got nominated for the Democratic Party and then became president when I was a freshman in college. And I was like, oh, wow, maybe I've like misjudged sort of what this country is. And maybe we, we are on some kind of like linear track. And, and we kind of having that thought. Of- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then, you know, that notion was very quickly disrupted. And so I think as that notion was being disrupted in my head because of all the events that unfolded um, in the last, during the Trump era, I guess you would say, I was also learning in my research that, oh, like, It's always been cyclical, you know, the Greenwood story itself shows and the Red Summer shows that black people had made all this progress in the 1910s and no one ever taught us about in school. And then it was literally destroyed, you know, Mm -hmm. so that was already a huge setback we had faced that disrupts the idea of American progress. I just never heard about it because no one taught me about it in school. And so I think between seeing us in this sort of reset right now that we're going through, And then realizing, oh, that had literally been a reset instigated by white violence um, and white racism in the 1910s and 20s. I sort of really came to understand that this is this is a cyclical dynamic, and to me that puts a lot more urgency on history. You know, because if our country's story is cyclical in some ways, then we're going to be in these same scenarios that the Greenwood folks were in or other folks were in, and so it's really important to understand um, how those dynamics um, occurred. And for me, at least on my side of it, it's not really about the don't let history repeat itself because I don't think I'm going to convince the kinds of people who are in that white mob to not do their thing again, to be honest, whatever formula it's going to take. But I can learn lessons from the black folks in Greenwood about how they came together Mm -hmm. or how they strategized. So to me, that's what's learning from. And that's why my book is very hyper focused on the black experience and the Greenwood experience as opposed to sort of having diverged into what were the white quote unquote villains up to. I don't really care that much. They seem more like the obstacles Mm -hmm. the scenery the Mm -hmm. thing that's always going to be there but i'm like what are the strategies i can get from these black folks and what they were doing Because that's what i need to know to move on with my life with my people so
0: yeah no and and i think that's a perfect way to describe it um you know because i'm sitting here reading i'm thinking you know what the what the good ones were going through in 1914 is the same thing the good family's doing now in 2023 right it's just the descendants Mm -hmm. it's it's not much different right it it just it's just doctored up and look and, and, and you know sort of a, a different sort of, sort of uh, uh, lipstick on the pig, so to speak. Um, right. So, where do things stand now with the good and Tulsa specifically, Greenwood as a community?
1: Yeah. So, to your point about um, parallels. Um, so, in the early part of the book, before the race massacre, I talk a lot about Tulsa and Oklahoma politics. Mm-hmm. And so these efforts by black folks to go appeal to the mayor for get ready to eliminate Jim Crow mm-hmm. and to appeal to even the president to eliminate Jim Crow in Oklahoma. And all these things just get shot down again and again and again. Um, fast forward to now, and I actually spent a lot of time shadowing um, Regina Goodwin. So Regina Goodwin is the great granddaughter of the couple, J. H. and Carly, who came to Tulsa from um, Jim Crow, Mississippi in 1914. And the book kind of follows their family arc over 100 years. So Regina is now a state legislator in Oklahoma. She's one of only um, two black women in this House of Representatives. So I shattered her a lot. And I saw that, oh, she's almost having the exact same experience going into these overwhelmingly white spaces of power, sort of speaking things that um, would provide some level of justice or recompense or peace to her people here in Greenwood and being shot down every time almost, you know. And I sort of show how she's able to navigate that and sort of eke out a few victories. But it's really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was really um, important to me to highlight because I think it shows, to your point how um, so much of the power dynamic has not changed, you know, um, and even how this is sort of a side tangent, but even how in some ways black folks lost a certain amount of power dynamic after um, integration, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. you know, black folks, A, had an economic base yeah. because we were segregated and had to private each other Mm -hmm. we also had a political base Mm because we were all in one spot and so there would be these sort of like quasi-political leaders like Mm -hmm. regina's grandfather ed Mm -hmm. the quasi-political leader of greenwood he had all this he had all this influence because he sort of like had a lot of power and control over the black community in his own way newspaper yeah all those things yeah Mm -hmm. yeah exactly exactly we don't have anything Those we don't have those institutions anymore so we've both lost an economic base and we've lost a political base and so it's much easier to excel, I think, individually now as a black person, but collectively, um, and the stats show this—that you know the wealth gap is increasing, all these kind of things. Um, and so you know, where places with the good ones and green with today, I think is in—in in some ways, I think the beginning of trying to rebuild those institutions. You know, so I think that's—I want to—I don't—I'm—I don't, I, I don't want to continue being Afro pessimist. I don't like being <laughs> a pessimist. So I, I'm trying to focus on what we can do to move forward. And I think my book is actually not pessimistic at no, all. No, not at all. Yeah, and so. I think that there's been a lot of movement in Greenwood towards um, building up new institutions. So, for example, um, there was a man uh, killed by an uh, unarmed black man killed by a police officer um, name was Terence Crutcher in 2016. And the book kind of follows sort of Greenwood's experience with the Black Lives Matter movement through this man and his sister, Tiffany who has become a huge police reform activist. And so, for example, Tiffany has like a new nonprofit in Greenwood called Terrence Culture Foundation, and they're actually about to buy a huge property in the neighborhood. Oh, and like they've they've like made a lot of positive moves to not only sort of remember Terrence's life, but actually um, do political action in the community. That's really positive. You know what I mean? And then with Regina um, Goodwin, what she's doing, she's actually been able to get federal grant to study removing the interstate from Greenwood. So Greenwood, like so many other neighborhoods, had an interstate bisected in the 1960s. It destroyed a lot of homes and businesses. The neighborhood was never the same. And the federal government has actually awarded a billion dollars to remove these interstates from black communities across the country. And so Regina was able to get a grant for that to actually be considered um, in Greenwood. And that was something that seemed like a complete long shot, right. even two years ago. Mm-hmm. She was talking about this, and I was like, "That's that's cute. That's not going to happen." <laughs> right? You know. <laughs> but but um but you know she got the money. She got the grant. The federal government is tentatively on board with the concept we're going to see where it goes yeah, yeah. and so i think that those are really those are really positive transformative things for this community and i think it's really important and the book ends i think on all these sort of new notes mm-hmm. of hope or progress because at the end of the day i actually don't think the pessimistic view is um a it's not that productive because who wants to live their life like that. Right. But also it's not the way the Green folks thought in the past. Their mm-hmm. whole their whole neighbor was burned to the ground. They rebuilt it within a year. Correct. So you cannot be a, a pessimist and you know have that kind of gumption.
0: No, that for sure. That that's perfect. Um I'm sure you are. Are you familiar with um the collection of essays um edited by Kimberly Crenshaw and Kendall Thomas, Critical Race Theory? Um A little bit, a little bit. I haven't actually read through them, I'm familiar with the concepts. You're familiar with the concepts, right? So, yeah, yeah, Yeah. for those of you that don't know, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, Neil Gotanda, Gary Peller, Kendall Thomas edited a collection of works called Critical Race Theory, The Key Writings That Formed the Movement. Um, And your book loosely falls under something that someone would call critical race theory. You know, the right's been attacking that term forever, or at least more recently, and I don't want to get into why it's silly, but like, it, it just is, right? Like it, yeah, it's yeah. on so many levels, right? The, the actual study of critical race theory is an interdisciplinary thing that is taught at graduate schools and like advanced level college courses. And then like, that's right. It's not taught in elementary school, but be that as it may, your book uh, is something that might fall into that category. So congratulations <laughs> in, in many ways, right? Of, of you being uh, of one of those people who has a book that people might want to consider not letting people read, but you kind of touched on it, but what is your hope? uh, for people when they finish reading your book?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it varies, you know, one of the most rewarding or valuable, um, responses I've gotten so far was, um, I, at my, one of my events here in Tulsa, there was a guy, um, like about our age, I guess, who was from North Tulsa. Um, he's like, oh, I read your book and I like, learned, I learned things about my neighborhood. I didn't know. I understand my neighborhood a little bit better now. And that was really powerful to me to have somebody who's from the community mm-hmm. saying like, oh, I sort of put some pieces together about how and why this place is the way it is. So I think for me, that's like by far the greatest thing. If I've been able to, because all I really did was collect a lot of different puzzle pieces. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Everything in my book is from someone else, whether it's so many of the Greenwood residents and descendants um, or from the census records or whatever it is. These are all little these are all little scraps of information about Greenwood mm-hmm. that I was able to assemble into this, into this project. And so if I've been able to help someone from here sort of see their neighborhood in a fuller in a fuller way, I've been naturally powerful. You know, I know that when I had my event here, uh, it was at the Greenwood Cultural Center, which is basically like the historic community center in the neighborhood. And that was actually my first um, one of my first public events like that. And I was really nervous. I didn't know if I'd even be good at this. And it was kind of crazy because, like, I was, like, explaining redlining and then the crowd, like, cheered. It's like a rally, (laughs) like an academic rally. (laughs) And that was just kind of surprising to me. But it was – I mean, I get it because if I explain redlining in a a digestible way, it makes it easier to understand why there's disinvestment in North Tulsa Mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. It all stems from that. You know what I mean? And so I think people really responded to the idea that – Here's a here's a work that explains all the reasons this place is the way it is. And it sort of disproves the idea that you can drive through that neighborhood, but oh, it must be because the people are here. It mm-hmm. must be because mm-hmm. you know they don't they don't take care of themselves, mm-hmm. they can't or whatever, mm-hmm. or they're somehow lesser. Right, right. You know, I think the book um is a rejoinder to that knee-jerk reaction that some white folks in Tulsa honestly have. I know when I first um was visiting here, I, I would visit a lot in the first couple of years of my research. I took a lot of Ubers and whatnot. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about moving to Tulsa. Oh, don't go to North Tulsa. I got that a lot Mm, from uh, just mm. taxi drivers. You know what I mean. Um, And so I think that a work that can put into context um, why this place has has so much disinvestment, I think, is really valuable. And so I think that's on the local side what I want people to get from it. And I think for people outside of Tulsa, I hope that they'll read this book and think about the parallels to their own community. You know, we've already discussed how. The Tulsa race massacre wasn't unique for the era. So wherever you live, your town or somewhere near your town had racial violence in that era. Mm -hmm. Wherever you live, um, your town had a Black neighbor that was disrupted by the interstate or urban policies in the mid-20th century. Uh, Wherever you live, there's been police violence in the last decade that's disrupted the lives lives of Black folks near you. And so I think this book, um, because it's basically a community profile, I hope people will think about how their own communities have experienced all these same things. And maybe how they can be more engaged in understanding that history and helping um, have better outcomes in the future.
0: No, I think that's that's perfectly well said and a good place for us to take a break. This episode of True Hoop is brought to you by BetterHelp. Hey, guys, Gerard from True Hoop here. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do? It's a hell of a question. Would you maybe go for a run, take a nap, read a book, maybe show up for a friend? Now, depending on the day, any one of those would be a great idea. Most of us spend our lives wishing we had more time, but the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Now, I've been open in the past with you guys about this. I see a personal therapist as well as a couple therapists from my partner and I, and both are extremely helpful in developing positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. All right, Victor. So we are a sports podcast, as you as you mentioned now. So in, in our emails back and forth, we you know, we are an NBA podcast. And you said, you know, man, I have to go back to like Sega Genesis and pull out like NBA Live <laughs> to Talk about and talk about <laughs> basketball because I don't I don't really you know, I'm not up on it now. So I think I want to I want to start there. So what kind if you had a, if someone asked you what kind of like as I am, what kind of sports fan are you? What would you say? Lapsed. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Lapsed. Okay. Okay. What? Uh, what are the reasons for that? For that lapse as a sports fan?
1: So it was definitely like ubiquitous. I have an older brother who's a master sports fan. He's like a super sports nut, and my dad is like I was like an average watch a Sports Center kind of dude. Mm-hmm. So it was very ubiquitous when I was a kid. And so when I was a kid, it was like osmosis. It was just kind of like, okay, we we're watching center every day. So like, I know the entire lineups for the Bulls, obviously, but also the Pacers. Yeah. My dad went to um, IU okay. for college. Okay. So he's had this weird Indiana obsession his whole life. Okay. <laughs> <Listen>. <laughs> so we we're kind of like a Pacers house. <laughs> it is, 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 what, is what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then I'm also a huge video game fan. Okay. And so that's why among the mix, there would have to be NBA Live, Madden, okay. Um and see that coach case incidentally basketball okay. I if you remember that okay. one okay um so that was all as a kid i think that um as i got older i really started just gravitating towards alabama football cuz i went to the university mm-hmm. of alabama mm-hmm. and then i feel like honestly i was still like kind of watching some sports but the pandemic threw it off for me man mm. everything became so Everything became more arbitrary. Like every single league, is like, well, this isn't a real this isn't a real season, so why should I watch? Mm. And it kind of just like it's just kind of kind of like knocked the bug out of me. Mm. So um the last thing I was holding on to was um I used to play tennis a lot. So Serena Williams yeah. uh majors. That was yeah, my yeah. thing yeah, for yeah, a long yeah, yeah, time. Yeah. And now we don't have that anymore <laughs>
0: <laughs> Okay. So what would it take for you to become invested in sports again? It seems to me a figure, whether it be a Serena williams type person which you know could be tennis could be basketball whatever. There has to be some compelling figure i think to draw you back in is that was that what i'm what i'm hearing? oh yeah
1: it's gotta be it's gotta be a good narrative i used to look like, i was all about the narratives the tiger narrative the williams sisters narratives mm-hmm. um you know even like Better matter the Pacers, I love the thirty for thirty about uh, Reggie Miller yeah, winning time. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's one of my favorite ones. <laughs> just like the troll, <laughs> the troll of the nineties NBA. I just love, I love, I love the persona, like you said. So, uh, even though I don't um watch that many sports now, I do love sports documentaries because I love the drama that sports can create. So. Sometimes, sometimes I just distill distilled documentary versions all I need instead of actually watching all the sports. <laughs> so is it um a, a lot
0: of it I, I imagine is a product of so you grew up in Alabama, yes?
1: Yeah. That's uh, right. so that's it, right.
0: not having a pro team, that probably was part of it down there, right? You don't have a pro yeah. team. I mean, yes, University of Alabama football, roll tide, is a thing, but you don't have an NBA team, you don't have a baseball pro baseball team, you know, right? You don't have an NFL team. So that probably made it a little bit challenging too.
1: Yeah, yeah. If you're from Alabama, you just default to Atlanta sports. So um, was a massive Michael Vick fan. As I specifically remember, I was like, Vick, first of all, Vick and Vick. This is amazing. <laughs> and then I, I desperately wanted a Michael Vick jersey as a kid. I wanted one so bad. They were like two or $300. They were so expensive. And then finally, I'm like 13 or 14 or something. And my parents get me the Michael Vick jersey. Nice. literal years for this. <laughs> literal years. Fast forward a couple months, Michael Vick is arrested. i like, hey, you're like this is the biggest pariah in sports, and I cannot wear. I be getting fucking, or I'm sorry, you're fine, getting, you're fine. <laughs> I be getting. I have be getting Peter throwing like paint on paint on me from wearing his his jacket out. I mean his jersey out. So um, and that's not that's but that was we were a uh, Atlanta default city and family. Okay. I guess okay. without having any Alabama. Um, Professional
0: no, no, that, that makes sense. Um, it's interesting, though, because we had just done a series here on the future of the NBA and sort of what's happening to it and how it's evolving. And, you know, for you, it's about the narratives and, and the compelling drama. So, as someone that that's what it takes for you, have you found a a change in just the way that sports stories are told? I mean, we know the media industry as a whole is going through this. Not great change. Um, AIs are taking people's jobs, right? So, but the the narrative storytelling, right, of sports, I feel like that's gone away a bit. Is that and is that a problem for you? Yeah. So has has the has the way that sports narrative changed? Has that and the sports the telling of sports stories changed? Has that affected you as a fan?
1: I mean, I guess so. I mean, for example, I think about how like. You know, the NBA is much more perimeter-based now, and, like, the players are kind of more, like, multi-purpose, but it also makes them less sort of puzzle chess pieces on the board. You know what I mean? Because mm. they can all kind of do the mm. same thing. So you don't have, mm. like, oh, like, the Shaq figure and the Kobe figure, and they're doing totally different things on the court, and they have these different personalities, and it all kind of fits mm. together in this very mm-hmm. cohesive way in my mind for a narrative, mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. now it seems like everybody's sort of supposed to be a jack-of-all-trades in some sense. And so in that sense, they kind of, like, everybody seems more – interchangeable in my head as somebody mm-hmm. who's very casually watches anywhere for the ringer for several years so i do know the basics of you know how the NBA engage <laughs> <to
0: fall.
1: laughs> again <laughs> again osmosis
0: <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say that, that, that's, a, that, that's a definite can't work there without having some some nba knowledge um yeah. Yeah. victor this has been a pleasure everybody built from the fire the epic story of tulsa's greenwood district america's black wall street 100 years in the neighborhood that refused to be erased uh Victor Lucason, it was a pleasure. Everybody go out, check that out. Thank you very much. Thanks
1: nice for having me, Gerard. This is a great combo.
0: No problem.